Corning Hillside, why don't we come on in and stand up, worship the Lord together. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. And my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Sing it out. the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. There's joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Surely in this place we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. 
sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And he won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. We shout out your praise. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. We shout out your praise. Cause we were the beggars. forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the Sometimes that's difficult, especially at 7.30 in the morning or, or uh, based on our circumstances, sometimes it's hard to uh, enter with joy and, and to uh, rejoice. But uh, this bridge, uh, we were the beggars, now we're royalty. So we were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. So no matter 
the circumstance, we can all say this. We used to be beggars, now we're royalty. We were prisoners and now we're free. So let's sing that again one more time if we could. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have our announcements. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing, sing. We were the beggars. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. freedom that you've brought to us, that you paid a dear price for. I thank you that we are free, that we're forgiven, that we're accepted and redeemed by your grace, God. God, it is a joy to be here. And so, God, we rejoice in you, Jesus. God, we just pray that you would have your way in this place. We know that you're here. We ask that you would do what you want to do in our hearts. We open them to you. Just have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You want to come on up? Welcome. Good to see everybody. I've got a couple of announcements to give, just to make sure we're all on the same page with what's going on. Um, MOPS is happening, so they're already up and running. If you're a participant in MOPS, can you just stand up, a worker, leader, go to it? I just think it's good for us to see who's involved in that. So if you're interested, people can still come, right? Just grab, grab Heidi. If you're interested in what MOPS looks like, and then Awana's is up and running as well, and I saw Jennifer in here. Shit. So if you want any more information about Awanas, please come and see Jennifer. She'll tell you what goes on with Awanas and what all that looks like. Um, but I want to allow Val to share a little bit about what's going on with youth group today and this week. 
Charlie was going after Logan, not me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I just want to tell you about youth group. So I said there would be like weeks where we don't do the normal 4 p.m. thing. So that will start on October 1st, which is next Sunday, the middle school youth group. If high schoolers want to come, I'm not going to turn you away. But it will be mostly middle schoolers. We're going to go on a hike to some caves along Clear Creek Canyon. The Watkins are helping me out. Um, they're in the back there, so they know more about it. I've never been to these caves. So if you want to know more, ask them. Um, but I will be sending out permission slips via email. And we are leaving after the potluck. So make sure your kids eat because I'm banking on the food there to feed your children. Um, and then in the evening, we'll do a high school um, s'mores and game night. So that will be the normal 4 p.m. time. So anyways, just look out at your email for those announcements or updates. And then I do want to make sure I get the date right. We are joining Calvary on October 29th for Light the Balrog. I still have no idea what this is, but everyone else tells me it's great. And apparently I missed out on the whole Lord of the Rings thing, and I, everyone's explained it, and I still don't get it. So it's fun, I'm told. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> All right. it's, really, it's really just an excuse for kids to run around crazily for the night. We'll bring them back to you completely worn out, I promise. A um, couple other highlights that's going on this week. Uh, men's Bible study, September 30th. Um, next Sunday is our potluck, so make sure you check the email to know what you need to bring, whether you're bringing a side dish or a main dish. And then Thursday, October 5th, our young adults, I don't know what I'm doing, talking loud. I'm, yeah. um, I'll do that. Um, so Thursday the 5th at 6 o'clock. This is why I, I use the lapel mic, right, Mike? Um, so at 6 o'clock, they're going to be doing a study here. Um, hangout time, and then Friday, October 6th, a game night, 6.30 here. Um, and then October 7th, we've got women's and men's Bible studies, so just make sure you keep track of what's going on. All of this is on the website in our event section, and it's also on the Bible app, so if you pull that up, you can keep track of all this stuff. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit. I'm excited about this. Baptisms, for us, is an incredibly important time to make sure that we dig in. It's, it's important for every believer in their journey towards salvation. Um, we've got a special treat today. We're going to baptize Cosette. So would you guys like to come on up here? So I've enjoyed just even the brief conversations that we've had, but I want to frame this for us because I think it's important for us to understand baptism. Jesus says in Matthew 18, truly, I want, or so he actually talks about in Matthew 28, this clear direction of go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's this command and there's this example that Jesus has set for us. Um, I've also had people say, well, you know, what's the age requirement for someone to repent and believe? Um, you just turned eight this week, so congratulations. I think it's awesome. One of the things I recognize in this church is our children sometimes are the movers and the shakers. They're the ones that will propel some of the adults to have courage to stand up and do exactly what she's about to do. 
Uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like these children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then his disciples. So the, all these people were bringing kids to Jesus that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples started to rebuke these people, like, don't bother the Lord with these little kids. And Jesus said, no, bring these kids to me. These little children are allowed to come and do not hinder them, for to such a kingdom of heaven belongs to these kids as well. And so what I want you to hear today is this passion coming from this eight-year-old about what it looks like to follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus, and I want to keep believing and do this. And that's it. We've decided it would be short and sweet today. So in, in our conversations, um, one of the things that I ask is like, hey, are you doing this on your own? Are you being influenced in this? And the story goes that she was at home folding clothes in her room. I was, I was like, that's really good parenting. Well done. You know, uh, usually when my children were in their room folding clothes, it's more like, argh, argh. but this is where the Holy Spirit spoke to her and told her you need to be baptized. And so from that, on her own, in her room, folding clothes, came to her parents and said, I want to be baptized. And so that's just, did I get that story right? Close enough. All right. So I just liked that because I, I know sometimes for us, we just don't always um, know when and where we're supposed to be engaging with the Holy Spirit. And Cosette, thank you for setting that example for all of us this morning and having the courage to stand up here and read these words to us. I'm going to pray for you. Are you going to dismiss the kids? Damn. Close. All right. Jesus, we thank you for Cosette, her family, her parents, and just this legacy that she brings you know, through this family of following Jesus. I thank you for her courage today. I pray that you would anchor this moment, and that she'd be able to look around this room and be able to look back on this courage that she had to stand up here and to say, I believe in Jesus, and I want to keep believing in him. And so, Father, I, I pray that in her journey of life that this would be a moment that she can look back on. You know, she can anchor her faith in this and be courageous when this world comes at her and, and tries to get her to believe other things. And so we thank, we thank you for this today and the work that you're doing in her heart. Amen. All right. So we're going to go to Lions, the, the creek right across from Lions Park. So whenever we end here, so if we end at 1130, I'm going to give us 30 minutes. If we end at 1135, it'll be 1205. So whenever we end here, if you want to join us, this is also a pretty cool thing because the, the creek is going to be crowded today. And we're going to be able to stand in the creek and give an example of what it looks like to be baptized and follow Jesus. So we'd love all of you to come join us. Amen? All right. You good? Anything else you want to say? All right. We're going to dismiss kids now. So kids, you can go out in the foyer. If you're new here, you don't know what's going on, our children's ministry coordinators will meet you out there, and they'll help you get to the right room. Youth group is meeting next door. The rest of you, just find someone that you don't know and say hi.
Testing, test, go. All right, we are going to go ahead and uh, gather back together here. <coughs> So I was really hoping Rodney Scholl would be here. Rodney is a big-time Oregon Ducks fan. Any other Oregon Ducks fan? Okay. How did they give up six points to see you? I mean, that was kind of embarrassing. We had our third-string defense. Okay, third-string defense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was kind of a rough game for us Colorado fans. But, oh, well, Colorado State won, so that's a good thing. <laughs> All right, well, good morning. We are going to start this morning with a little visual exercise. So this is kind of a participation um, exercise here. What does this sign prohibit? Yeah, don't touch the wet paint. But what does it make you want to do? Even if you're the vice president of the United States, it makes you want to touch the paint, right? How about this sign? Stay off the grass. Come on, stay with me here. Good? And what does it make you want to do? You're like, wow, that grass must be really amazing. I want to get on it, right? And how about this sign? Keep off the fence. And of course, the natural inclination is to climb the fence, right? Now, there's actually a really good reason for this prohibition. So um, I, I would pay attention to that one because you don't want to get eaten by animals here. <clears throat> And then finally, what does this sign prohibit? And what does it make you want to do? Especially the kids, they want to ride the dinosaurs, right? Okay, so there are all kinds of signs in the world prohibiting all kinds of activities. Um, and yet our natural inclination is to do exactly what the sign tells us not to do. See, human beings are by nature rebellious, to the point where we almost resent any sort of command <clears throat> or prohibition. I saw a great example of this last Sunday on the playground right before church, and I won't mention any names to protect the innocent, <clears throat> but one of the kids was standing by the fence and they started to stick out their tongue to lick the fence. <laughs> and, and one of the adults that was very attentive and on the scene was said, basically, come on, don't lick the fence. And what did the child do? Immediately licked the fence. So that is the reason for the somewhat odd title for my message this morning. Don't lick the fence. Okay? <laughs> um, so again, you see, our fundamental nature is to break the rules, to buck the system to do that which we're told not to do. And that is a byproduct of our sin nature, which we talked about back in July when we talked about the sin nature of being inherited from Adam. So when we see a sign that tells us not to do something, but we still want to do it, is the sign the problem? Or is the prohibition the problem? No, it's our sin nature that is actually the problem. And I believe that's what Paul is addressing here in this passage today. See, up to this point in Romans, Paul has been talking a lot about the law. And it's been in somewhat of a negative light. And some might think that he is suggesting that the law itself is bad. But as we're going to see this morning, that is clearly not what he is saying. So, let's take a look at our passage here. 
We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. And it says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, when I first read this passage a couple weeks ago, knowing I was going to be preaching on it, I kind of broke out in a cold sweat. I'm like, what is he saying here? But thankfully, I've got some really good resources. I've got some great commentaries. I looked at four or five different commentaries, kind of sorted through them and synthesized and looked at the different approaches that commentators took to this passage and hopefully came up with a relatively easy to understand direction here this morning. So to that end, and hoping that God helps us here to understand this, let's pray. Father God, we are grateful just for this time together in the Word and grateful for Paul's writing and Grateful that it's hard, that it's challenging, that it it isn't just, you know, simple to figure out. Lord, we really have to think about it, consider it. We really have to trust your Holy Spirit to guide us as we study it. So, Lord, as we go through this passage today, as we go through this message, we just pray that it would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified and honored, that your word would be illuminated and made understandable, and that each one of us would be edified and encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you search for the word law in the book of Romans, you'll see that Paul uses it 77 times. So the word law shows up 77 times in the book of Romans. And the distribution is interesting. It shows up 43 times in the first six chapters. It shows up 23 times in chapter 7 alone, which we're looking at today. And only 11 times in the rest of the book, in the last nine chapters. So this tells us something about Paul's train of thought. So this is part of the idea of observing what a text says and really taking what it says and then figuring out the implications of that. So Paul's train of thought in this letter kind of goes like this. In the first half of the letter, he's emphasizing the law and he's really trying to convince his readers of the futility of trying to follow the law in order to gain salvation. Okay? And that peaks here in chapter 7 when we see 23 instances of the law. And then in the second half of the letter, he kind of gets away from the topic. So it's as if he's established his position on the law, he has declared that we have been released from the law, and then he moves on to other topics related to salvation. Now in our passage for today, Paul establishes that while we have been released from the law, it still serves a purpose. 
And that's one of the main things I want you to take away from today is that the law still serves a purpose. So I want to talk about the law for just a minute. Now, there are several key reasons, going back into the Old Testament, understanding Israel's history, there are several key reasons that God provided the law for Israel. First, he gave the law to reveal his standard of righteousness. See, he called Israel to be a holy, chosen, consecrated, set-apart people. And the law basically told them what it looked like to be a holy, chosen, set-apart people. Two, he gave the law to Israel to draw the other nations to himself. Israel was to be set apart, but not for the purpose of exclusion of the other nations. It was really set apart and given the law in order to attract and draw the other nations to God. Third, God gave the law to Israel as a gauge by which they could measure themselves, and ultimately, the law revealed the depth of their sinfulness. And then fourth, God gave the law to, to Israel to demonstrate that they could not be this holy, consecrated people without his power. Okay. So the law was God's standard of righteousness. And it was clear through the law that it was impossible to fulfill that standard without his direct involvement. So, when you consider these reasons that God gave the law to Israel, it was actually an act of grace. Because by giving them the law, God made his standard clear and obvious to his people. He didn't make them guess. He didn't say, I want you to please me. I, I want you to figure out on your own what it looks like to be godly and what it looks like to be holy. He made it very clear. Here are my demands. Here are my prohibitions. And even though that standard is unachievable, it's still gracious because he provided a solution for it when they fell short. Back in the day, back in the Old Testament, he provided the sacrificial system, which rendered forgiveness and temporary atonement for sins. And then if you look at the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, everything pointed to a long-term solution for sin, which he had in mind from the very beginning. And that was a Messiah, Jesus Christ. You go back to Genesis 3, and you already see God revealing his plan for redemption. So Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, everything is good. Genesis 3, we have the fall. And then in Genesis 3.15, it basically foreshadows a Messiah that would crush the serpent's head. The serpent would bite his heel, but he would crush its head. That is a direct foreshadowing of a Messiah. So ultimately, the message of the law is that those who are acceptable to God are those who trust in his righteousness, not in their own. And we see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Paul came to understand this truth after his conversion on the road to Damascus. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 3. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's talking about his background, his religious background, everything he had achieved. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, so up to this point in Romans, Paul has been pointing out the problems associated with following the law as a path to salvation. And he figured that the next question his readers would probably ask would be, is the law sinful? So again, he uses a rhetorical question here, anticipating their questions, and then provides an answer. So in other words, he's expecting them to say, is, is the law, based on everything you're saying here, is it really a bad thing? And Paul's response was, definitely not. But there is, as we'll see in this passage, a relationship between sin and the law. There is an interaction between those two. And so this is kind of the structure we're going to use for this passage, breaking it down into these four ways that the law and the sin and, and sin are related. One, the law sheds light on sin. It illuminates sin. It exposes sin. Two, sin uses the law to arouse sin. Okay, that's kind of odd. Sin's using this to, to arouse sin. It's almost as if the first sin here is a capital S sin, almost like an animate being, and it uses the law to arouse sin in our hearts. <clears throat> Three, sin uses the law to put us to death spiritually. And four, the law reveals the absolute sinfulness of sin. So we're going to walk through each one of these, starting with the first point here, that the law sheds light on sin. So again, looking at verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covenant. Now in this verse, Paul establishes that the light, or excuse me, that, that the law sheds light on sin when he says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And this agrees with something he wrote earlier in chapter 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So it shows the purpose for the law. Now, as I mentioned before, God provided this standard of righteousness by providing the law to his people. And because of this, God's people, then and now, are able to identify sin, which at its most basic level is the idea of missing the mark, falling short of God's standard. Now, Paul is not talking here about a general awareness of right and wrong, because all human beings have that. All human beings have a conscience. All human beings understand some level of right or wrong. I mean, unless there's something seriously wrong with, you know, mental faculties. But, but all human beings have that capability. Okay. Even though they don't have the law. Okay, so that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is really having a, an understanding of the full extent of our sin. And that understanding of the extent of our sin comes when we compare our behavior to this divine standard that's declared in the law. Now see, before Paul's conversion, he was a self-righteous Pharisee, right? He was a legalistic keeper of the law. And what the Pharisees had done is they had externalized the law and called it tradition. They focused on the outward, observable, attainable demands of the law as the means for being acceptable in God's sight. And so what had happened is they actually lowered the bar. They lowered the standard and made it humanly attainable. And again, they called it tradition. 
They did not take into account the condition of the heart, though. And Paul came to realize it was really the internal demands of the law that were more important than the external demands of the law. So what he's saying here is that he came to understand the seriousness of sin and the internal nature of sin through his understanding of the law and through revelation by Jesus Christ. And this is interesting because he chose the 10th commandment here to illustrate his idea, this idea of, you know, thou shalt not covet. See, the first nine commandments are somewhat more external in nature. I mean, the idea you can, stealing and murder and adultery, those are all observable behaviors. Even idolatry and, and how we worship God can be an observable behavior. But the 10th commandment, which prohibits coveting, is internal. And it's really what leads to all of the other, breaking all the other commandments. So Paul is acknowledging here that the real battle with sin is inside of us, in our heart and in our mind. Now, we see the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus declared that the battle with sin is internal. When he said that not only is physical myrtle, murder sinful, but hatred, that internal attitude of hatred is sinful. And not only is physical adultery sinful, but so is the inner attitude of lust. So again, the law sheds light on sin. And by illuminating sin in a person's life, the law actually plays a role in salvation. Because the conviction that comes from the law produces an awareness that we are sinners. And that we need to be delivered from sin. It produces an awareness that we need a savior. Okay, second. Sin uses the law to arouse sin. Verse 8 says this, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law sin was dead now the the, the word translated opportunity here the greek word was typically used as a starting point or a base of operations for an expedition or a journey so a beachhead a launching pad those kind of ideas and so the idea here is that sin uses the law as a base of operations for launching its evil influence on people's lives. And as it says here, sin is very opportunistic. When the law declared that coveting was wrong, sin took the opportunity to arouse all kinds of coveting in Paul's heart. And sin uses the law to arouse sin in the hearts of God's people. So the villain of this story is sin and the sin nature, not the law. And that's a crucial point from this section of Romans. You see, as Christians, we sometimes kind of demonize the law, okay? And we tend to do everything we can to remove the burden of the law from our lives, right? But that's the wrong goal, because that burden has already been removed. Jesus already fulfilled the law on our behalf. He lived a sinless life. He died an atoning death. And he fulfilled the law for us. But that doesn't mean that the law has no value or no application to us in our lives. We can benefit from reading the law and learning what it teaches us about God. As I mentioned earlier, we as human beings are rebellious by nature. Something in our human nature wants to push back whenever a law or prohibition is given. So, so when a person is confronted by God's law, those forbidden behaviors become even more desirable 
Think back to the Garden of Eden. The one thing God prohibited Adam and Eve from doing was eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They gravitated toward the very thing that was prohibited. But they didn't do it totally on their own, did they? The serpent was right there. And the serpent seized the opportunity given by the commandment, as soon as God said, do not eat from this tree, the serpent seized the opportunity given by the commandment to arouse sin. So since we have a sin nature, the law, with all its prohibitions, with all its mandates, arouses that sin nature. It awakens that in us. But again, this does not make the law sinful. Paul's simply declaring that sin is opportunistic, and it exploits the law, and it exploits our inclination to do things prohibited by the law. So this is a really important point. This, this came out of Wearsby's book, Be Right, which we've recommended uh, that you all follow along with as we go through this study. But he made this point, which I thought was really, really profound. When we as believers try to live by rules and regulations that we come up with ourselves or that we take from the Bible or the law or whatever, when we try to live by those rules and regulations, we quickly find that the legalistic system that we've created actually arouses more sin and creates more problems. So legalism doesn't make you more spiritual. Legalism actually makes you more sinful because sin uses those rules and regulations to arouse sin in our nature. Third point, sin then uses the law to put us to death spiritually or to try to put us to death spiritually. Verses 9 through 11, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. <clears throat> so, as Paul has been arguing up to this point in the letter, the, the law cannot bring life. It can only bring death, showing us that we are guilty, right? And having been a Pharisee, Paul was an expert in the law. And at one point, if you look at the book of Philippians chapter 3, he actually considered himself blameless before the law. But when he came to a true understanding of the law, he came to understand that perfect obedience to the law was impossible. And he realized just how far short he fell of that standard. So sin sprang to life and he died, but not literally. He died in the sense that he realized that all of his spirituality, all of his blamelessness as a Pharisee was garbage, that it didn't mean anything. And he saw his sinful self in contrast with God's perfect law, and it broke him. His self-righteousness was in ruins. And he realized that what he had originally considered a path to salvation, the law, was actually a path to spiritual death. And this explains, I believe, his zeal for Christ and his zeal for sharing Christ and for salvation by faith alone after he became a believer and why he was so passionate and so adamant to help his fellow Jews see the error of their ways. 
to not go into that legalistic trap and why he was later so passionate about helping the Gentiles avoid that trap of legalism as well. This was his whole message. It's about grace. It's about faith. The law is not, itself is not bad. Legalism is bad. And thinking that the law can get you to the point of salvation is wrong. Further, he says in the section that sin, being opportunistic again, deceived him. And I think what this means here is that sin deceived him into thinking he was somehow acceptable to God based on his good deeds. And therefore, he didn't need a savior. He could do it all himself. And this was true of Judaism in his day. And it's true of all other major world religions today. Each and every one of them, if you dig down in deep enough, they are based on works. They are based on self-reliance. They are based on earning God's favor. They are based on the idea of human beings reaching up and doing enough good things to please God. But what's unique about Christianity is that in Christianity, we see God reaching down to rescue us, dying himself on our behalf and providing the means to reconciliation. And we don't have to do anything but believe. The last point is that the law reveals the absolute sinfulness of sin. Verses 12 and 13. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now again, back to the beginning of our passage. It began with a rhetorical question. Is the law sinful? And Paul's response was, certainly not. And here he goes a step further and says, the law is actually holy, righteous, and good. Now on the surface, this seems to be a contradiction to what it seems like Paul has been saying to this point in the letter. And it also seems to be a contradiction to a lot of the things we hear about the law today. Now, we are taught that we are under grace, but not under the law which is absolutely true. Please don't hear me wrong here. Please don't leave here and say, Sean was preaching that we need to adhere to the law to be saved. That is not what I'm saying. We are under grace, not under the law. But that does not make the law itself bad. And again, like I said earlier, sometimes we demonize the law and we just shun it. We avoid it. We don't even go there in our Bibles. But again, Paul here is saying that while there is a relationship between the law and sin, the law itself is not inherently sinful. Think, for example, when someone is convicted of murder. Is the law that prohibited murder at fault? Of course not. The one who broke the law is at fault. And the law is good because it exposes the evil. In the same way, God's law is good. Even more so, even more so as Paul says here, God's law is holy, righteous, and good. And it serves the purpose of bringing sin into the light and helping us recognize sin as sin. And when sin is held side by side with God's law, his holy and righteous standard, the character of sin is seen for what it is, utterly sinful. And sin is so utterly sinful that it has actually perverted the purpose of God's law. 
so that instead of bringing life, the law brought death. Now remember, the ultimate purpose of the law was to make God's people aware of their sin and aware of their need for a Savior, right? But instead, sin, being opportunistic, twisted the law and made God's people think that they could somehow fulfill God's standard of righteousness on their own. That is the legalism that stands in stark contrast to the grace that Paul writes about over and over and over again. So, to quickly summarize Paul's argument here. The law is not sinful. It is holy, righteous, and good. The law sheds light on sin and reveals the sinfulness of sin. While sin uses the law to arouse sin and put us to death spiritually. So his conclusion here is, see how sinful sin is when it causes something good like the law to produce such disastrous results. And the law really did have a disastrous effect in many ways, but the law itself wasn't at fault. And we can know this because if the law was truly sinful, if the law was at fault, if the law was bad, if the law was evil, then Jesus would not have claimed that he came to fulfill the law. He would have outright declared that he came to abolish it. But that's not what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He said, I came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. So, coming up with an application for this specific passage was a bit challenging. Because this passage really needs to be considered in the context of all of chapter 7. And in an ideal world, we would preach chapter 7 as one sermon, but it would probably be about a two or three hour sermon. So, we broke it down. And so what you have here is kind of this section gives a lot of details for the next section that Kevin's going to talk about next week. And that portion of chapter 7 really gets into some of the more practical applications of what Paul is communicating here. But there are two things that I want you to take away from this morning. The first is I want you to realize that you are in a constant battle with sin. And if you've given your life to Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. But that doesn't mean that sin all of a sudden has no influence on your life. And Paul makes it clear that sin is opportunistic, sin is deceitful, and sin is trying to kill you spiritually. Genesis 4-7 talks about sin crouching at your door. Talking to, when God's speaking to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. I believe that's still true today. So you cannot be complacent when it comes to sin. You can't keep reaching into the fire and pulling your hand out when it starts to hurt. You cannot give into that. You are in a battle with sin and you have to play to win. The second point is don't shy away from the law and the Old Testament. And notice I made a distinction between those two. We sometimes use those terms interchangeably. But the law and the Old Testament are different things. The law is contained in the Old Testament, but the law is primarily contained in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, or law. And that's where the Mosaic law is laid out in all its details. And then it's, it's repeated elsewhere, it's talked about elsewhere, but, but it's primarily there. So think of those two separately. Now, as followers of Christ, I think we sometimes spend most of our reading time in the New Testament and neglect the law and the Old Testament. 
And I think that comes from a mistaken view that the law and the Old Testament are outdated and irrelevant, which probably stems from the idea that we are under this new covenant of grace, not the old covenant of the law. So we tend to make this black and white decision, well, if we're under grace and not under the law, we can ignore the law. We don't need to read that. And again, it is true, absolutely true. We are under grace and not the law. We are saved by grace, not by adherence to the law. But there is still great value in understanding what the law and the Old Testament tells us. Now, it is true that some of the Old Testament laws no longer apply. They have been either fulfilled or overturned by Jesus. One example is the sacrificial system. We no longer have to kill animals when we sin, right? Because Jesus satisfied that for us with his once and for all sacrifice. But many of the laws in, <clears throat> in the Old Testament actually come through loud and clear in the New Testament and in Jesus' teaching. And some of them are made even more strict. So again, going back to the examples of murder, well, not just murder, but hatred. Not just adultery, but lust. So we can't categorically say that the law no longer matters. You actually have to do the work to consider the laws, to kind of put them through the filter of the New Testament and Jesus' teaching, and say, okay, does this still apply to me? I mean, think about Jesus' summary of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. What's changed about that? Nothing. And he's saying that's the law, that's summary of the law. So all the things that we read in the law feed into that loving God and loving others. I mean, the law still communicates to us what is important to God, and it can be a guide for what behaviors are pleasing to him and what behaviors are not pleasing to him. Again, not so that we can gain salvation, but that as a result of our salvation, we can be thankful and act accordingly. So there's still value in understanding the law, and there's still value in reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes up 75% of the Bible. It is a significant portion of the Bible, and it paints a backdrop for the New Testament, and it gives us important contextual information about what everything Christ did for us, and it provides a foundation for the Christian faith. And the combination of the Old Testament and the New Testament reveals the overall story of redemption. Again, you have creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the fall, Genesis 3, the introduction of the foreshadowing of redemption in Genesis 3.15, and then the rest of the Bible tells the story of redemption. Christy and I were recently watching the two Top Gun movies again on back-to-back -back nights. We were sick. We needed some entertainment. And they're both actually really entertaining movies, going back to, to watch those. And the second movie, Top Gun Maverick, is a really good movie, and it, and, and it could kind of stand on its own, right? You could, you could watch Top Gun Maverick without necessarily seeing the original Top Gun. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. Because you would definitely be missing something. Because there are so many connections between those two movies. Even though they were done 30-plus years apart, I think it was. There are so many references in the second movie to storylines and characters and even specific dialogue from the first movie. And in a sense, that's the way it is with the New Testament and the Old. You can read the New Testament by itself, and you can come to an understanding of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, and you can understand the plan for salvation, you can come to salvation, you can understand the history of the early church and all that, but without reading the Old Testament, you won't have the whole story. 
and you won't necessarily all understand all of those New Testament references to storylines, characters, and even dialogue from the Old Testament. Beyond that, the Old Testament simply reveals a lot about the character of God and who he is. And if you're ever struggling when you're reading the Old Testament, let's say you're doing a through the, the Bible in a year plan and you're, you're just uh, slogging through Leviticus, just ask yourself, what does this tell me about God? Don't get so hung up in all the details. Or, oh, I can't believe they did that back then. Or, I can't believe God committed. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about what's important to God? And see, there is always more to learn about God. And so my challenge is this. Don't shy away from the law and the rest of the Old Testament. Read the whole Bible. The inspired word of God is comprised of 66 books, not 27. So don't miss out by neglecting any of them. Let's pray. Lord God, we are just, we are thankful for your word and thankful that Every page, every verse, every word is from you. It was inspired by you. <laughs> Written by human beings, but inspired by you. And you use those human beings and their unique circumstances and backgrounds and struggles and doubts to produce this incredible revelation of yourself. And we're just grateful to have it. We know it doesn't teach us everything about you, but it teaches us a lot about you. And we tend to neglect some of that. So. Just help us to be better readers of your word. And help us to be very aware that sin is after us every day, every minute of our lives. And Lord, we're thankful for what you did on our behalf, Jesus, and that we are forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful, that we can get complacent. It doesn't mean that at all. So Lord, we're thankful for this word thankful for this letter, thankful for this study we're doing. Just pray that you would just help us to take from it whatever it is you want to teach us today in our own individual circumstances, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.
back to Jesus. I love this journey that we've been on as a church. There's a point here that God's trying to drive home in all of us. And it's happening in our men's Bible study as well. We talked about it a lot yesterday that uh, there's nothing that we can do for our salvation. It's only Jesus who can do it for us, who has done it for us. get to that point of I can't do it anymore. I can't uh, do it right. There's truth in that and there's freedom in that knowing that we're never going to get it right or do it right. So we give up. fall into the arms of Jesus who's already done it.
So let's give up. Let's surrender to his grace. Make 
that we have in our life and um, got this picture of like a, a dam in um, the water and just when those cracks start to happen um, in the dam that it, you know it starts to crumble a little bit and the water starts to come through more and more and more and just really thinking about what makes a crack in those barriers in our life and it is only the truth of God it's the truth that we stand on and just like Sean was sharing just that um, sin deceives us and sin creates this barrier but what that if you think of a wall even not in the water but what if you make a hole in the wall through the truth of Jesus Christ what comes through is light and so um, yeah, I would just encourage us this morning to break down those walls by the truth of Jesus Christ. And that comes through being in the Word of God, that comes through studying the Old Testament and the New. I just went through Isaiah, and I was, Sean and I were talking about it weeks ago, that the beauty of Isaiah is there's so much sin and there's so much bondage, and yet what God did for his people, it becomes so much more rich when you realize the price that was really paid and, and how he extends a double portion to those who aren't worthy. Um, and so I would just encourage us this morning to let the truth of God and constantly be in the truth of God because our sin isn't just, it might be a physical sin, but it might be an attitude of the heart or something that you're struggling with. And we have to continually come back to that truth to break down those barriers and those walls in our life. That dam that is breaking the freedom and the love and the joy of Jesus Christ because it is so beautiful that instead of a law that we have to abide by, God gave us that grace so that we could be free and so that we could be in relationship and that we could enjoy that intimacy with him. Um, and it's just really speaking to me this morning because there's some things in my life, these attitudes that I've been struggling with that I just want God to break down the walls. Um, so thank you for sharing that truth again, that we have to be on guard. We have to constantly fight the 
fight. And we do that by the blood of Jesus Christ and knowing his truth. You're still enough Keep me within your love My heart will sing your praise again Your promise still stands Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Still in your hands, this is my confidence. You never failed me yet. Yeah. 
never failed me. And my song 
shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's sing that again. How marvelous. How marvelous, how shall ever be how wondrous how wonderful is my Savior's love for me for us then we would be truly changed and the world around us would be truly changed so help us understand God and how we live is not based on the law but it's based on what we think of you what you think of us. So God, bring us to that place. Help us know and understand. Let's sing this chorus one more time. Stand if you like and just declare Savior's love for us. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love. Sing, how marvelous. land my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my Savior's love for me God 
God, we declare that together, and we thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. God, we pray that today and this week that we would live lives of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Don't forget to come down the, to the river if you can make it. 12.05.